Debbie's thing is this week, really next week. Okay, good evening. Welcome. A good Chodesh, Chodesh Tov to everyone. It's a great new month, and tonight is the night that everything changes. Why? Because the, there's a halacha pertaining to tonight. There's a Jewish law pertaining to these hours as we stand right now. And the law is stated in Masech Shabbos, Misha Nechnes Adar, when the month of Adar comes in, Marben Besimcha, we increase the joy. So right now is when Adar is coming in. It starts tonight. It started like uh, two hours ago over here in LA. It became evening and night, and uh, we're supposed to increase the joy, and we have to continue increasing every second and every moment as we move through the entire month. So let's check in a little bit into the origins of that idea, which is from a passage in the Talmud, Masechtas Tainus, tractate dealing with fasts. Okay, so in Masechtas Tainus, um, it says all the way over here, and the end of it, uh, here it is, on page 29, get the reading glasses on, page 29, the whole beautiful story, how I, I, I found my reading glasses, but that's not for now, it was lost for two, three weeks, and I was getting very, very annoyed, but now it came back to me, in any case, by the way, anybody that wants to dedicate this special class tonight, it's all available for dedication if you are plugging into the energy of tonight which is the night the night of the energy the month of ador you might want to go for it let me know after the class in any case um last week's class was dedicated by by um after the class I just want to mention her name. It was really nice that she dedicated the class last week. Let me go back a week ago here on my messages. Yeah, Elsa. And this was in honor of her daughter, Elsa. She dedicated last week's class in honor of Chana Rachel, Chaya Rachel, Elsa. I don't remember what her last name is now. She used to be Mantereso. And she got married, and I'm sorry, Elsa, right now, I still have you as Elsa Monteres. So her new name. Anyways, this is in honor of her baby daughter. So that was really nice. So tonight's class is also available for anybody that would like to dedicate Hashem should bench Elsa and your family, Chaya Rachel, with a ton, a ton, a ton of blessings. Let's go back to the class. So it mentions over here in the laws of fasts, all the way in the conclusion of the tract they dealing with fast days, which are usually not happy days, um, and over there, it talks about the month, an entire month, or at least the beginning of the month in which we tone down the joy. And it states so in the Mishnah, that in the month of Av, which is, it comes out in the middle of the summer, August time, we have to diminish the joy. So now the Gemara says like this, Amar Rav Yehuda, Bereder of Shmuel Bar Shelis. Rabbi Yehuda said, the son of Rav Shmuel, the son of Shilas. you got three generations over here, the grandfather of Shilas. His son is Shmuel, and his son is Rabbi Yehuda. And this Rabbi Yehuda states like this. He says it, Mishmei de Rav. He says it in the name of Rav. Now, it makes sense that Rav would say this, because Rav means a lot. And he's going to tell us something about Marbim, about a lot. Increase. His name is Rav. Rav means a lot. Uh, just like 
when of comes in, we decrease the joy. So when the month of Ador comes in, we ratchet up the joy. We pump up the joy. That's what it says over here. Um, so we need a little bit of an understanding. What exactly is that energy? We, let's, get, let's get a deeper understanding. Because in order to us to really tap into this joyous energy of the month of Ador, it helps to know where that energy is coming from, what is the cause of that joy that is supposed to carry us through and intensify the entire month of Adar. So we take a look at Rashi. Rashi says, Mishanechnes Adar. Over here, Rashi is the, is the commentary on the Gemara, right over here on the in, in Haftes, page 29, the last Rashi on the page, 29 on the first side of the page, Haftes. Rashi says, because Yemei Nisim Hayuli Yisrael Purimu Pesach, because these were days of miracles for the Jewish people, Purim and Pesach. Okay, so Rashi blames the joy on the miracles, because we're, we're, we're coming into a time of miracles. A big miracle happened on on the month of Adar. We all know the miracle of Purim, which is a which because of the miracle, all of the Jewish people were saved from complete annihilation, and it was an incredible miracle. And because of that, we are supposed to be happy. The question, however, over here is just if you pay attention to Rashi, Rashi throws in Pesach as well. Now, knowing how much Rashi is careful with every word that he says, Pesach is not in the month of Adar. Pesach, like who, who's talking about Pesach over here? Pesach is in the month of Nisan. It's next month. So why would, the question is twofold. Why would, um, what's the relationship of Pesach which, which which every little child knows in the month of Nisan, not in the month of Adar, why would that be consequential in the joy of of um, of Adar? What kind of relationship does that have to the month of Adar? That has a relationship to the month of Nisan. And moreover, we don't find, the law does not say that throughout the entire month of Nisan we have to be joyous. The special law that tells us that when other comes in, we have to be besimcha, which seems to imply on the entire month, even after Purim, the entire month has to be a joyous, a joyous month. We have to focus on joy and increase the joy. It's for the month of Adar. It's not for the month of Nisan. Now, Nisan is a wonderful month. It's Passover, Pesach, and we have a holiday. And... Uh, to a certain degree, it extends its influence on the entire month of Nisan because we know we don't say Tachanun, special supplications of prayers, because it's festive. The whole month is festive. But there's still no emphasis on joy other than on the holiday itself. Mo'yadim l'simcha, you're supposed to be joyous. So if we are going to say that, that the cause of the joy is the miracles, and we're going to emphasize which miracle? The miracle of Purim. Now, Purim belongs to Adar. But what's with the miracles? And moreover, we're even using Pesach, which is in the following month, to justify joy in the month of Adar. If that's the case, then why is the joy not extended specifically to the month of Nisan as well? Because then as well, there is Pesach. And if we are blaming, if the cause for the joy is the miracles that happened, well, where do we have a bigger miracle? 
the miracle of Passover, the miracle of Pesach, the miracle in the month of Nisan, is a greater miracle. It's just simply a greater miracle. You have the 10 plagues, extraordinary events, leading up all the way to the 10th one, the plague of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And it's the miracles of, of, of Nisan, first of all, is so powerful that the entire month of Nisan is called Nisan, which one of the reasons why it's called Nisan is because it has the word Nais, which means the real season of miracle is the month of Nisan, not so much the month of Adar. When we compare the miracle, we see that the miracle of Pesach is much greater than the miracle of Purim, twofold. Number one, it was a greater miracle, as we're soon going to discuss. The miracles of Purim were miraculous, but far more explanatory in a natural way. You can explain away the miracles of Purim as just a, 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 a sequence of coincidences. If you want to, if God forbid someone wants to just be outright non-believer, it is much easier to deal away uh, with, 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 with Purim miracle than to dismiss the Pesach miracles. Pesach miracles was a complete alteration of nature. So the miracle was more powerful, number one. Number two, the consequence of the miracle. Because after, Pe after, Pur um, after Pesach, we were not in exile anymore. Exile was over and we were in the state of redemption. After Purim, we still remained in exile for a couple of years. Then the Jews finally um, made Aliyah, a massive Aliyah, went up to Israel, rebuilt the temple. Um, but that happened later. In the words of the sages, that after the we remain the servants and the slaves or the servants of Achashverosh. Achashverosh's um, dominion over the Jewish people, the Persian um, influence of the Persian sovereignty over the Jewish people did not cease. We did not become and we did not achieve independence. Although we reached a very high level within status in Persia, within the government and so on and so forth, we achieved a high level of respect, which was great, but it still is not complete redemption. So for that reason, the miracles of Pesach are much stronger than the miracle. So if we don't mention Pesach, if Rashi wouldn't mention Pesach, good. So let's just, we're not, we're not thinking about it. We are just focused on the month of Adar, and let's just appreciate what's in the month of Adar, find what's special. We have a beautiful miracle. It's a good reason to pop the champagne bottle. Good, good enough. But once Rashi wants to help the situation out, by increasing the joy and throwing in Pesach as well in the mix, he's only making problems. Number one, if that's the case, then Nisan should also be a joyous month, have the same rule. Number two, perhaps even more joyous. And yet we don't see that emphasis in the month of Nisan. We do see it in the month of Adar. So this needs an explanation why the emphasis, and everybody knows that the happy time, in, um, uh, the happy month is the month of Adar. It's beautiful. Pesach is beautiful, but it's not the happy month. I'm sure it's good to be happy all year long. As a Jew, we should be happy all year long, special during the time of holidays. But the month that's called the happy month is the month of Adar. And rightfully so, because the sages tell us, Mishanech Adar. But 
if the reason is miracles, then there are greater miracles and therefore a greater, more, a time for joy could have been in the month of Nisan. Okay, based on all these questions, I mean, perhaps let's add one more question. And that is, from the words the sages use, marbim besimcha, it implies that we really have joy all year long. It's not like all year long we're depressed and other comes and we start being happy. But rather, we increase. Whenever you say increase, means you have already, and then we add. Now, having already joy is not, shouldn't be a wonder, because to be a Jew and to serve God, being a Jew means to be in service of Hashem. I mean, not being a Jew. Being a Jew is a state of existence. But, but actualizing one's Jewishness means being in a relationship with God and being in service of Hashem. And serving God must have joy. There is no two ways about it. If you're not, if we're depressed and that, we're not serving much. It's a very, very, very dead service. And we're not going to get much done. Joy is an, is an absolute necessity in Judaism. Um, all year long. So we understand that in the month of Adar, it's not we're introducing joy. We're increasing the joy. The question, however, is if the reason we are happy is because of miracles, that means that it's not just we're happy because we're serving God. We are happy because of the miracles that particularly happened on Purim. Those miracles did not happen other times of the year. Forget about Passover. Let's move that out of there. Generally, all year long, we don't have those miracles. We're generally flowing through nature. We're living in a natural world and we're under the not under, but we go along with the with the with with the with with the way things are naturally. Within nature, we're serving God. Nice. But it, we're living in a natural world. Now, other comes. The reason we're supposed to be happy is because God performed miracles. So it would mean that this unique special joy that we have in the month of Adar is only unique to the month of Adar or another time when there's miracles. And being that the rest of the year we don't have the miracle. So this type of joy, which is, which is a consequence of miracle, should be new in the month of Adar. So true. Joy itself is something that is supposed to be all year long. But the type of joy which is produced by a miracle is new in the month of Adar. And if that's the case, if that's the case, so why does it say marbim besimcha? It should say, Mishanechnes Adar Maschilem Besimcha, Oisem Simcha, I don't know, a good word that would introduce that now we are being happy, not just increasing. Because the idea of increasing means the very same joy that you've had, now that very joy, just pump it up. Turn up the volume on the very same tune that you've been singing. The fact that we use the word Marbim connects the joy of all year to the joy of Ador. We need to understand what that is. Another question I'm going to ask, we also don't want to ignore the Parsha. The Parsha this week is Parsha's Teruma. Teruma is all about building their tabernacle, starting to build a home for God. The question is, always the month of Ador, almost every single year falls out in the week of Teruma. So there must be that the joy and the unique festivities of the month of Adar and this great happiness and joy 
must be connected somewhat also to the parsha, which is parsha's truma. So we want to find the connection. Okay. So with all of that, let's take a little bit of a deeper dive. Purim, in addition to Purim being a time in which we celebrate our freedom and our um, our uh, survival, the big miracle that happened, we're giving thanks to God for the awesome redemption that he redeemed us from the hands of Haman and Amalek that wanted to destroy us. There is also a... a, 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 a more spiritual side to Purim because this is not spiritual per se it's our physical existence in this world but Purim also has a spiritual element to it and that is that according to the sages on Purim we really completed receiving the Torah and this is based on a passage of the Talmud of the Gemara in Tractate Shabbos Daf Peiches, page 88 the Gemara says that, um, listen to this passage of the Talmud. The popular passage says like this. This passage is talking about the giving of the Torah. And it says they stood at the bottom of the mountain. Rabbi Avdimi, the son of Chama, the son of Chasa. Again, we have three generations over here. Malamit. By the verse saying, and this is in last week's and two weeks ago, Torah's portion, it says they stood beneath the mountain or they stood under the mountain. So from here we see that the Talmud takes it very literally. They actually, it should have said they stood at the foot of the mountain. It said they didn't say they stood at the foot of the mountain or at the base of the mountain. It says they stood under the mountain. So from here we see, that God took the mountain of Sinai and he held it over their heads like someone holds a soda cap on top of a on top of a bottle or uh, some kind of a stopper. So God takes the mountain, he holds it over their heads. And God said to, to the Jewish people, if you accept the Torah, good, it's wonderful. And if not, over there you will be buried. So basically, the, the the acceptance of the Torah, we find out in this Talmud, and like hundreds of years after the Torah is given, we're informed of a little secret, that the entire giving of the Torah, which, set, which sounded like it was something that the Jews were so excited, and everybody was so happy, and everybody couldn't wait till it happened, and we all cried out, let us, you know, we will do and we will hear, we find out. A thousand years later, or a little, a little later than that, even fifteen hundred years later, we find out that the whole thing never happened. It didn't go down that way. God actually took that mountain and he held it over overhead. He said he held a gun tower, and he said, "Take it, or I blow your brains." That that's what it seems like the Talmud is saying. God held the mountain over their heads. Said, "I'll drop the mountain." If not, there you. This will be a big cemetery where. Oh, yeah, two million people will die under this mountain. So what choice did we have? It's a shocking statement, but that's what the Gemara says. We'll soon see that maybe we can lighten this up a little bit and make this a little prettier. So now the Talmud says, I'm going to get, we're going to get to that later, but now let's continue. Comes from Achabar Yaakov, another one of the sages, and he says, well, 
I think this is good news. Mikan my daughter What's the good news? From here, there is a an exemption. If anybody is held, is is uh, someone who, who 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 maybe did not keep the Torah so perfectly, which is all of us. We all are sometimes a little bit negligent here and there. So when after when a person is brought in front of the heavenly tribunal, and he is asked and he's charged with a lack of observance. The person just has to be ready to give the right answer. He says, I really never accepted this willfully. Any type of contract where a person goes into under duress and under under the threat of violence, we know is meaningless. That's according to Torah. If someone sells a house to someone else and the person later can prove that he can show video or for our witnesses, he produces witnesses, that the person held a, a baseball bat to his head and told him that if you don't sell me, if you don't sign this document, I'm going to crush your skull, God forbid. And the person goes and uh, yeah, then you invalidate that document and the sale is null and void. And so is any type of contract you go into. So if we are, why do we have to keep the 613? The rest of the world does not have to keep those 613 commandments. They're obliged to keep seven commandments. We got 613. Why? Because we accepted it. We went into contract. We accepted it forever and ever. And we know that all the souls of Israel for all the generations, everybody was there. But we have we have an excuse because we can all argue we were coerced. Based on what we find out over here in Talmud, that they held a mountain over our head, there it goes. So everybody has an excuse. Seems good. The Talmud doesn't leave it at that. Omar Rava, Rava says, not so fast. This worked for the first 1500 years or for the first thousand years, I'm sorry. This worked for about the first thousand years of, gener of, of Jews. They could have used this as an excuse, even though the problem was that at that time, no one told them this. <laughs> they didn't have the Talmud yet. So they didn't have that information. While they were still able to use that coupon, before the coupon expired, <laughs> Or um, um, they, I don't know, it's not a coupon. What would we, what would we call it before they were able to use that defense? Um, they didn't know about it. No one printed it. And once it was printed, Rava says, by now that excuse expired. Why? The Jewish people reaccepted the Torah in the days in the days of Achashverosh, which means the days of Purim. When the miracle of Purim happened about a thousand years after we stood at Sinai, we then accepted it and then we did it without duress, without anybody forcing us. And where did he learn it from? Rabbi de derives it from a verse. They stood up and, they, and the Jewish people accepted. What did they accept? The simple reading of it means they accepted the holiday of Purim. When Mordechai and Esther then the year afterwards proclaimed this day as a holiday, the Jewish people accepted the holiday with all the customs and all the mitzvot that go along. To a, you're not allowed to go to work. You're not supposed to really work on Purim and all, all these things they accepted. However, Rava, the sage Rava from the Talmud, learns it on a much broader scale. He says they accepted it means they didn't only accept the holiday. They accepted all of the Torah. He says, They just now validated that which they accepted in the past. 
Why do they have to validate? Because the original acceptance was flawed. Why was it flawed? Because it was under duress. We were compelled to do so. It was forced, but now they accepted it. Now let's see what, what's the reason. What was why what happened in the days of Achashverosh that made them accept the Torah willfully? So Rashi says, because such a wonderful miracle happened to them, they felt such love and gratitude, love to God because of the great miracle. God had just kissed them with such a powerful kiss. They felt so excited that they really opened their hearts up to the Torah and said, you, we love you, God, so much. Whatever you want, we're going to do. So from that day and onward, we accepted the Torah, and this time it was wholeheartedly not because of any external exert, uh, exerted influence or, or force. And therefore, as we said earlier, the excuse expired. And today's days, we are bound to Torah and mitzvahs because we all accepted it nationally by the story of Purim. That's the passage in the Talmud. What we see over here is that there is a spiritual side to Purim. The deep, one of the deeper elements of Purim is that Purim brought the 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 acceptance of the torah to the to the to its completion in that sense we can begin to explain the relationship of why rashi says that um when rashi says by the beginning of adar because miracles happen and rashi says purim and pesach i'm not yet explaining why the pesach is going to explain the joy but we have another link that's going to link Purim and Pesach other than the fact that they are come pretty close on the calendar. Every woman knows that as soon as she's beginning to make the Shalach Manas for Purim, in the back of her head, she's not even thinking about Purim, she's thinking about Pesach, right? Because we're beginning to clean for Pesach already. And we're wondering how we're going to deal with the mess that Purim is. Purim comes and messes up every Jewish home because it's a wild party. And then Pesach comes and everything has to be put into order. right? But but that's the simply Purim and Pesach come back to back. But here's a deeper reason. What started in Pesach ends on Purim. Because Pesach is also related to the giving of the Torah. Even though Pesach is not the holiday of the giving of the Torah, for that we have the holiday seven weeks later, which is Shavuot, that's the holiday of giving of the Torah. But we know the exodus of Egypt, its entire soul, its inner purpose was to go to Sinai. God explicitly stated, I am taking you out of Egypt so that you can become my servants. I am freeing you from the external servitude to Pharaoh, and now you're going to come to the foot of the mountain and you're going to become my servants. So the whole purpose of going out of Egypt was to go to Sinai and take, but God says it to Moshe in the first meeting with him. When he appoints him as a as a as a as an agent to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, he says, "When you will go out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain, which means we will accept the Torah." So Pesach is really the first, first, first initial stage in receiving the Torah. It was a preparation for receiving the Torah. It's what enabled the receiving of the Torah. But that event in the year two four four eight to creation was not completed seven weeks later when we received the Torah. because there's an element of force. We were forced under the mountain. So therefore, it needed 
to wait until the holiday of Purim is going to be initiated, which happened, as we said, a thousand years later, which at that time we we said we will do and we will hear wholeheartedly from the depth of our being without any bit of reservation, full of love and full of desire, we accepted the Torah. So Purim and Pesach now are bound together. Pesach starts the entire process that opens up the chapter of the Torah coming to the world and the conclusion of it, of the giving of the Torah. Purim sealed the deal. Okay, so Purim seals the deal in Pesach. But now we got to ask the question, hold it. Rashi, we're talking about miracles over here. Rashi told us the reason why we accepted the Torah with our with an open heart on Purim because we were so excited about the miracle. So that's why we and what's the idea of the miracle? The miracle that led to our salvation. Well, what's with Pesach? Pesach we experienced, as we discussed earlier, even greater miracles, spectacular miracles. And miracles that were stunning. Not miracles in camouflage and enclosed in nature. But miracles that were outright a display of God shutting down the world completely. Doing whatever God wants at the moment. Disregarding nature completely. A spectacular revelation of God's presence. In which God is showing immense love for the Jewish people because he's overriding nature completely. And it led to a complete redemption of people that were tortured and enslaved for over 200 years of the worst type of suffering. Now they were freed as a people. And that's not good enough to create within the Jewish people the goodwill, the excitement. That if God asks of them something that they shouldn't be willing to accept it, that God has to take a mountain and hold it over their heads. Again, and Rashi says that the reason we did it in the days of Ahasuerus, why in the time of Purim? Because of the love that we felt to God for the great miracle that he did for us. So why didn't the miracles of Passover miracles? Why didn't that have that effect on our heart? So for that, we need to get a little deeper, understanding the difference between the miracles of Pesach and the miracle of Purim and why it's precisely the miracle of Purim that brought about the goodwill of the Jewish people to receive the Torah wholeheartedly and why it's only those miracles that lead us to joy. Because the joy is not on Pesach, the joy is on Purim. The real emphasis on joy. There is happiness on Pesach, not dismiss that, but the real emphasis on joy, on Simcha, is the Simcha of Purim. Purim and the whole month of Adar. So what is unique? What is, the, what is the secret? This is very important for our lives, as we will see in a moment. And the idea is as follows. There is the actual miracles that God was doing. Purim, Pesach, both God is showing his love to Israel. He is, he is interfering with the world. He's doing his thing because of his enormous love. In both cases, He's producing miracles. But there is a difference in the type of miracle. Two kinds of miracles. As a result of the two kinds of miracles, the effect on the enemy, the effect on the, on the one that we needed to be redeemed from, 
there, or we might say the effect on the force of the exile was different. Because the miracle was of a different type, its impact on the darkness was different. The effects on the darkness was different. And as a result of that, our response to the miracle was also different. So we will look at this on three levels. Again, we will begin with the, with the miracle. The miracle is a different type of a miracle. As a result of that, its effect on the darkness is different. On the exile, how the exile kind of weakens or is dissipates as a result of the miracle, which will explain as well our reaction to it. And then number four, we will then appreciate why the joy element is primarily called for only in the miracles, primarily in the miracles of, of, of Passover, of Purim over the miracles of Pesach. And then we will all take it to, because if we don't talk about Mashiach, why are we here? We will then lead it to the, to the ultimate redemption and then understand why the ultimate redemption is really, really, really where it's really at, what we're heading to, and where, why that's going to be the ultimate joy. So before we get, so let's start. We'll start first in the difference of the miracle. As mentioned earlier, the miracles of Pesach and the miracles of Purim were very different in nature. The biblical miracles mentioned in, in Exodus and the story of Shemos that we've been reading the last couple of weeks were God basically doing his thing. And God was utterly disrespecting nature. Nature had no say at all. God kind of just shoved nature aside. First, the plague of the blood. The, the, all the waters turn into blood. There's no natural phenomenon. No one can ever explain that scientifically. Nature doesn't cause water to turn into blood. Then suddenly swarming of the entire Egypt with, with frogs. That's not natural. Lice suddenly appearing over all the people. That was just a spectacular stunt of God. Even the Egyptian sorcerers couldn't provide that with their magic. And they called out and they said it's a finger of God. And then the plague of the, the multitudes of animals. A normal city, a normal country suddenly flooded by a mixture of every kind of wild beast. I'm not going to go through all the ten plagues. But these are all spectacular. Miracles, one greater than the other. The hail, which we know is a mix of Water and fire mixed together with water and fire usually don't mix together. And here they're both in harmony doing God's will. And then the darkness that came and then the plague of the firstborn. Finally leading up to the splitting of the sea. These are just outright miracles. And if you're there, you can be the biggest atheist you are. You want to be. You watch something like this, there's nothing you can do. You can lift your hand and say, I don't know. It doesn't. It, there's no explanation at all. God is doing his thing. So the miracle overpowers nature, suspends nature, nature is shut down. It break, or in other words, we say it, sh it shuts, it silences the world. That's what it is. It subdues nature completely. It silences creation. The miracles of Purim were completely different. The miracles of Purim were a miracle that kind of weaved its way into the into nature. Because what really happened was nothing over here that was like. Um, naturally impossible. What happened? Nothing. There was no thing you can, mud didn't come down from the sky. Or rock didn't turn into water. Uh, Mordechai didn't wave his wand and something happened. It was a story. Achashverosh is, is married. He gets angry, he gets drunk. That's a normal thing for a king throwing a party for 180 days. 
and 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 he gets angry at his wife. That's also an army normal thing for an for an angry king. And when he's angry and he's a king and he gets whatever he wants and she insults him that he has her killed is also a normal thing. It's not like there's nothing miraculous over here. And then that he does a beauty uh, contest and he has all the girls comes and he falls in love with a particular girl. That's not a miracle. He's looking for a wife. He's going to find one that he really, really, that captures his heart and that happens to be Esther. And she goes into the palace. And then that there is a scheme between two, two, two of the king's uh, b -b -b guards who decide to assassinate the king. These happen, read the stories of every empire. These happened all the time that assassinations were going on. The fact that Mordechai was, happened to be in the vicinity and over here they're scheming to do this and he saves the king's life, which played a big major role in the changing of the king's heart later, as we see in the story. It's also a natural, a very nat natural event, so on and so forth. So as you read the story and you go through all the things and then Esther intercedes for when Haman makes a decree against the Jewish people, even though Ahasuerus is a pretty evil guy, he goes along with it, he's ready to kill a few million people on one day, literally a bloodbath. He doesn't love the Jews at all. He, he's willing to sell the Jews down the creek without not for any money. He tells Haman, you don't even have to pay me. I'm willing to say he's a pretty bad guy. But after all, he loves his wife. And when she reveals in the beginning, she didn't know she's a Jewess. And she reveals her identity to him. So all of this, and then he's suspicious on Haman in the first place. Haman was getting a little too whatever. And, 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 and he finds out that Mordechai was the one who saved his life. And Mordechai is also a Jew. Was all, all these things happening at the right moment. You had a perfect recipe for the whole thing to turn over and to be. Now, stepping back a through feet, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of feet, and looking at the story a little objectively, and looking at the sequence of events which happened over a period of about, I think, nine years or something like this. When you look over the whole span of events, or twelve years, again, I'm, I'm not sure right now. I didn't look over the Megillah right now, the the story. By looking at all these pieces together, you see a, 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 an incredible sequence of coincidences, which you can't call a coincidence. You see, it's God's hands over here. That God orchestrated all of this together, and everybody realized that at the time. And you see a miracle. But the miracle is very not overwhelming. The miracle, we might call it a soft miracle. It's not a heart. It's not a power. The miracle doesn't come and clobber the world. The miracle kind of slips its way into the world, manages and we might say manipulates all the events to work according to God's will, and that's the miracle. That's the difference in the essence. This is a hard miracle. It's a new word. I just came up with it while I'm teaching right now to characterize it. Not a new word, but a new word. A hard miracle and a soft miracle. Okay, that's the difference in the miracle. Um, so put it in other words. A hard miracle, meaning the miracle doesn't consider anything else but itself. It does what it wants. That's it. My way or the highway. Everything else is knocked out completely. The other mir the miracle does consider. And it looks in a respectful, it's almost like the miracle is standing by the door and kind of finding where it is a crack in the wall. It can kind of slip in and move around, move, move this a couple of inches this way, move this a couple of inches that way, and create kind of all these circumstances to work out consecutively one after another. So the miracle is very much, it's almost like the miracle is afraid to push the button, to go too hard. It releases itself very slowly, like, a, like when you take a, 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 a um, time release pill capsule that releases uh, a, an aspirin or, or, or something like, you know, every, 
every little bit it infuses a little bit more. It kind of works over 24 hours. Here the miracle was like comes in very quietly and releases its divine interference, you know, bit by bit. That's that's the idea of the miracle. Now, when the so now let's take a look at the consequence. How did that impact the in both cases, we wanted to destroy and take down a plot of the unholy. The unholy is ganging up against holiness. In Egypt, they're, sub, they're, they're enslaving God's children. The promised people, the great chosen nation, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The holy nation, just, uh, just born a nation, and yet here they're ready to wipe them out. They want to throw all the boys into the Nile River, kind of eradicate the peoples. Same idea. Like Purim, destruction of Israel. So this is the enemy. When the hard miracle comes, the hard miracle that doesn't leave any space for anything but the will of God and punches its way right through, in that case, it doesn't, what, ha what happened to the evil, what happened to Pharaoh, he was decimated completely. It literally knocked all his teeth out, not just his teeth out, it knocked them out completely. So Paro could not become a willful participant Paro was just knocked unconscious. First, the ten, the ten, the ten uh, miracles, the ten plagues clobbered him, and he was already laying bleeding to death on the floor. He managed with his last bit of, and he freed the Jewish people with the last bit of strength. Him and the Egyptians managed to stage their final chase. After they were already clobbered and beaten, they were swollen already. They had black and blue marks all over. They were so beaten, and yet. With their last bit of strength, they still came to fight. So they did not in any way have a change of heart. And if they changed of heart, power, it was just momentarily. And then he flipped his heart back. And in the end, what did God do to them? He drowned every single one of them in the sea. Power was the only survivor, so he can witness it. His entire nation decimated. His army was gone. So the Jews went out by hook and by crook. So there was a destruction of evil. And that fits very well with the character of the miracle. The miracle doesn't care what nature has to say. The miracle doesn't care if anybody has votes. The miracle is not looking for a vote. You're voting, you're not voting. God is not here for consent. Since God was not looking for nature to join along, the evil that exists within the natural world didn't either, wasn't either asked. To give its stamp of approval. Like it or not, this is what's happening. And evil was stumped out completely, at least that evil. Not from the world completely, but at least that evil. With the story of Purim, it's a different story. Because what happened? The way the miracle provided, the way the miracle came about was Achashverosh, who was the source, who, who went along at least, he wasn't maybe the source of it, because Haman was the source. But Ahasuerus, who went along very willfully, and he was definitely a, a, uh, a, 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 jo a uh, happy participant to join along in this holocaust that they were planning. Um, so he has a very, very, very rotten, evil heart. Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, suddenly becomes, the magic is, that he suddenly becomes the biggest ally of the Jewish people. So what happens suddenly is evil is transformed. Evil becomes a, an ally to holiness. He promotes Mordechai. Instead of Haman being his chief minister, Mordechai becomes his 
chief minister. He, 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 he empowers the Jews. Instead of his initial thing was to, 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 to fund a campaign of rioters that were going to spread out over the world with their anti-Semitic blood, lust for blood, Jewish blood, in which he was going to support that massacre. Right now, he arms the Jewish people to the teeth, funds them, and gives them all the ability to stand up and fight their enemies. And he's on their team and on their side. So what do you have over here? You have a transformation. You have evil and unholiness being flipped over. In other words, the beauty of Purim is one word, a flip. It's the flipping month. The month that has been flipped over, or in the Hebrew word, it's called v'nahafach. Purim is v'nahapach. V'nahapach means turned over. What was once bad became good. Darkness was transformed to light. Now that is consistent with the nature of the miracle. God is not looking to punch, punch nature out. God wants nature to join. He wants to work with nature. And since God was respecting nature and the world at that time, even though he's interfering, he's interfering, as we mentioned earlier, in a very soft manner, and therefore helping co coax, if you might say, and, and, and um, helping the natural world itself move in a direction in which it would bring about the, and it would support Israel and holiness and, and God's will in a way that, again, that nature was accommodating the miracle. In that way as well, the force that it needed to take the evil itself was also became a participant, was transformed. You see how the miracle over here, the different type of miracle, the, the, the hard miracle, the soft miracle, is, is what's responsible in the in the uniqueness of the outcome of the miracle there is something magnificently beautiful when the evil guy turns turns good when evil becomes an ally and that is in a sense much greater that when you just bust the evil completely and destroy it completely the beauty of the transformation it is so magnificent and it is so beautiful now let's take a look at the third element that we mentioned earlier. Consequently, out of this, how did it affect the Jewish people? So now we can come to step number three. You realize how all these things are perfectly aligned. On Passover, and the miracles leading up to Passover, miracles leading up to the redemption of, of, of Pesach, since it was God delivering his will with enormous power and enormous force, and he knocks out the evil completely. And the display of God is so powerful and so strong. So guess what happened? When we took the Torah, yes, we, we came, we stood at Sinai, we, we received the Torah, but there wasn't much of us there at all. It was God having his way. It was God imposing his, himself on us. Now let's revisit what we said earlier, that God held a mountain over our heads. That's not nice. That's really, really not nice. I mean, why did God do that? Especially if you read the Torah portion, 
it implies the simple reading until you read the, the, the Talmud, until you read the the, the 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 passage in the Talmud over here in, in Tractate Chabas, you wouldn't get a clue of that. The verse seems to be implying how it was such an amazing time and the Jews were so excited to go there and now everybody was waiting to receive the Torah. The fact that God held held a bat over our heads or, or a gun tower temple. You don't, you don't feel that? And the answer is because that's really not what happened. We need to st understand what the Talmud says. No, no, no. The story that we're reading in the Chumash, that we, were, we, really, we, we really were excited. What does it mean that God hit a mountain over our head? There is a deeper meaning. So the Alter Rebbe, the one that we study his teachings every Thursday night, Rupshner Zalman of Liadi, he explains the mountain does not mean a physical mountain over our heads in which God has said, I'm going to crush you to death. What God was really holding over our head was he overwhelmed us with his love. A mountain, love is called a mountain. Because what is love? When you're feeling love towards an, someone, your soul, your energy, your being is protruding outwards towards that person. It's almost like you want to just grab that person and envelop that person into yourself. That's what a hug is. That's what love is. That's what an embrace is. So love is a protrusion where you can't control. You don't want to be anymore in just in your space. You want to, you want to connect to the other, which means you want to extend yourself into the other, into the other being. That's what a mountain is. You have flat land, and the mountain is earth protruding upwards, almost like earth saying, I, 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 it's almost like the earth expressing a desire to touch heaven. So when we say God held the mountain over our head, it means that God loved us to pieces. God showed, and the miracles of the, 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 the Torah, of the Exodus was so powerful. Because when we saw with our own eyes that God suspended all of nature, God doesn't like to usually, for thousands of years, God is silent. He never meddles with the natural word. He likes, he created nature. It's important to him. He runs it quietly, but nature is really only him the whole time. Also only God's constant miracles. But yet that's a system that he doesn't like to take down. And when we watch that God over completely dismissed all of that because of his love for us. And then he continued showering us with that love that was so powerful that that forced us to love Hashem. It forced us. So when we said we want the Torah, of course, we really want it. We, we wanted it. It wasn't. It wasn't like, as we said, it wasn't under the threat of death. What, what, what it means is that our willful acceptance wasn't an acceptance that was truly coming from a deep decision deep in our hearts that we really want to give ourselves over and live a godly, holy life, which entails so much so much restriction, so much difficulty, so much hardship, sacrifice. No, accepting the Torah meant, you know what that meant? For all of our generations to live the life that the Jewish people live, not an easy life, very meaningful, but not easy. Every little aspect of life is governed. Some things we like, a lot of things we don't like, and yet we got to do it anyways, because that's that's what the Torah says. And we pay the price, enormous sacrifice, hate, being hated by the rest of society, being persecuted, going through a hellish nightmare of 
of exiles and so forth, where the rest of the world is really envious and not happy about the Jewish people. All of this was accepted. It was all part of the package. Who in their right mind is going to accept that? Now, if you really, really deeply understand that it's God's commandments and you're having the privilege to serve God, yes, it is the right mind to accept it. We could accept it and we did and we would accept it. But at the time of the giving of the Torah, it wasn't coming from a deep appreciation of the mitzvot and so on and so forth. It was, we were intoxicated by love. It's like sometimes, you know, a girl becomes crazy in love with a guy and or a guy becomes crazy in love with a girl and they they decide to get married and there are cases where the girl has to leave her parents and she has to go far away away from family and away from everything and sometimes part of the package of the marriage will include some extreme difficulties on her part or on his part enormous sacrifices and the parents ask their child their daughter or their son their you know do you really realize what this entails do you really really and they can't think straight because they're intoxicated by love the love 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 can blind the person completely love completely can over overwhelm you so it's one thing when you really sit down and you can detach yourself and really sit and think it, think it through. Right now, I'm so mesmerized. Well, will I feel the same thing in 10 years from now? When I'm lonely and I'm alone and I'm going living this particular hard life or whatever it is. I'll give you an example. We all know the story of the daughter, Rabbi Akiva's daughter. I'm sorry, Rabbi Akiva's wife. And uh, she, she um, Rachel was her name. She came from the wealthiest family. And her father wanted her to marry the greatest scholar. And she married Akiva, who was a shepherd boy, who was an ignoramus. But she looked into his soul and she saw that he was so high, so deep, so such a spiritual soul. Her father wasn't going to have it because he was an ignoramus. And, she was, and the father told her, you're going to live. You're not getting a penny from my estate. You're going to live like a poor girl the rest of your life. You're going to live literally like a... He threw her out of the house. She went to live with Rabbi Akiva. And she also appreciated scholars. And, but she believed in her husband. So imagine a girl who has to give up on everything. Sometimes it's just love, you know. Sometimes it could just be a fascination with his charisma with his you know with his uh you know just has a way with a girl some men have just enormous incredible they can put a spell on a girl and just completely you know completely take her and so the question is is it real or not in her case it really was real in other words she made a decision from a very deep place in her soul that she's really willing to do it but at times now if god is the one who is the boy and he's throwing his love at you, and he's kind of really, really, really charming you. Uh, are we really thinking from 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 an honest, deep place that we're really, really to make this commitment, or we're just being swept away by God? His romance. He's uh, he's a charmer, and that's it. That's what happened. We fell in love, and there was not much. That's what the Alter Rebbe explains. We fell in love. So it wasn't a coercion of a gun to our head. You're going to die. It was like, you know, 
It was the mountain of love. So even though we were in it, but the entire thing wasn't us. It was from above. So it's like, as we said earlier, it's like everything by the miracle. You know, we went out of Egypt. It was God. It was nothing. It wasn't Pharaoh didn't participate. It's everything. What we're doing over here is there are two parties over here. There's God, there's nature. There's God and it's God's enemies. And there's God and Israel. There's two parties in all these considerations. When it comes to, in the story of, 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 of the entire story of Egypt, God is not considering anybody. He's just displaying himself. He's just deciding this is his moment. He's going to get what he wants. That's what it is. God says, I'm getting what I want no matter what. So if God wants us out of Egypt, He's not listening at all to the, all the angels that are running nature. That whole system shuts them out, shut up, and finished. Literally shuts them down. That's it. No, nature is down. The next thing is when it comes to the enemies, he doesn't wait for their approval. If they agree to let the Jewish people out or not, be quiet. He just silences them, knocks them out of, kind of knocks them, literally just knocks them dead. And then when it comes to the Jewish people, he's not waiting for us to come, for us to consider it honestly from within ourselves. If we are willing and desire to live a life of such commitment and sacrifice, he just says, I'm going to get my way. And he sweeps us off our feet with his enormous charm and love. And we went along with it. That's what it means. We were forced. But you know what? At a certain time later, some people sat down and said, I don't know. I don't know if this if this is really what I chose. And that's what the Talmud says. We could really have an excuse and say, did we really make this choice from a from a clear from a clear-minded thinking? We were thinking from our heads or we weren't thinking from our heads. We were just overtaken by the romance. The tingling sensation of the love was just was was was, was literally we were we were drunk on love or we were on drugs. And we did not really make a, a conscious, rational, clear decision. That's why the story of Purim was so crucial, because it's a whole different story. When God is providing the story, the story, it also was a miracle. Rashi says we accepted the Torah because of the love of the miracle. But it was a whole different story. Since the miracle was soft, since the miracle was gentle, the miracle was not a... a, 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 a a bulldozing its way. It was a very soft miracle. And allowed it allowed the, 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 the other side to consider. It allowed nature to come along. It allowed Achashverosh himself, the wicked ones, to change hearts and to join along and to decide to be on the side of goodness and righteousness. And the same thing, it allowed us to make a decision. God was not overwhelming. He provided a beautiful salvation for the Jewish people, but he wasn't so stunning. He wasn't so. So we were able to really consider. We considered God's goodness. We considered his love for us. Then we needed to consider, do we really love him back? And are we really willing to commit ourselves eternally in all of our aspects of our life to God's to God's? Will? And we made that decision from a very clear peaceful place and therefore it was our truth and that's why Purim is so meaningful that's why it was the conclusion of the giving of the Torah 
based on this, all the above mentioned, which is all the teachings of the Rebbe, the Rebbe in a stunning way lines these these ideas that we can get an understanding of what happened. Now the Rebbe explains, now we'll understand, this is from a talk in the year 5751. Over there, uh, now it's in 1991. Now the Rebbe says, and now we can understand the reason why the joy happens on Purim and the joy is not so much on Passover. Because the, the joy that we're talking about over here is a joy that comes from the miracle. But the miracle on Purim is to a certain degree much greater, the soft miracle is much greater than the, than the, than the hard miracle. Why is it greater? And why is it, at least in, in terms of its relationship to joy greater? So first of all, let's understand, why do miracles cause joy? There are other things that can cause joy, but miracles are one of the things that make us happy. We watch a miracle, we become very happy. You see, what one of the things that brings joy is when we see something that is not supposed to be, when there's a radical change, when something flips, when something is changed. That's like, wow, that's creates that, that's what creates joy. But there's another element over here. Joy, what see what, what the, the 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 power of a miracle is that a miracle shatters or breaks the system. Let's say breaks, I don't say breaks, let's see. The miracle changes the status quo, okay? Causes a, 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 in other words, there's a way things are, if things are running its natural course means, tomorrow will be like today. The day afterwards will be like tomorrow. And afterwards will be, and obviously there is progress. Nature itself has its progress, especially with today's days with all the technology, with constant changes, we introduce new ideas. But it's all kind of predictable. Based on the inventions of yesterday, we can foresee what the inventions of tomorrow are going to be. Even though many of these inventions radically change society and change the world and change the way things operate. But again, there are people today that know already what the inventions are going to be in 20 years from now. Because you can, you can predict them. So these are changes. But a miracle happens and suddenly things Completely, everything moves and moves into a different direction. There is a shift. That idea that there is a shift, that's called a, a, a breach in, in the norm. Now, we would think, which miracle breaches the norm more? Obviously, most of us would vote immediately that a hard miracle, a smashing miracle, completely shifts everything as opposed to a patient miracle. But we're going to get to that in a moment. We're going to see it's not that way. It's actually a, 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 a miracle that shifts nature, kind of that, that, that a, mir a soft miracle that, that, that slowly di moves nature in a different, in a different manner is, is breaching the norm more than a smashing miracle. We'll see in a moment. But let's take a look at joy for a moment. One of the effects of powerful joy or the signs of joy is 
the joy leads a person to shift their, their, their normal conduct. When you are kind of just, you know, yourself, there's no joyous energy flowing in your body. It could be positive. I'm not saying there's this happiness, the general state of happiness. And then, you know, you move about. Everything you do has, you know, energy. Joy is, you see, joy brings energy. Now, there's regular happiness. You're happy. You're in a state, a positive state of mind. So when you walk, you're not walking sluggishly and lethargically. You're walking briskly. You're taking deep breaths. You're, you're engaging, you're alive, there's life. Joy brings life. But intense joy causes a shift in the, in the person's demeanor. It causes a shift. It changes, it, 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 bre it, it breaches the normal behavior. And what do we mean by that? Simply, when you are happy, enormously happy, you find out that something fantastic happened you've been waiting for. You've been waiting for something such a long time. You've been working on something to land a certain job, to, be, to get into a certain program, to be given an opportunity to do so and so, and you've subscribed a thousand times and you were declined and you didn't make it. And whatever it is, you entered into a context, a contest, whatever it is. And then suddenly, usually if it's, if it's, especially if it's suddenly, suddenly you get that letter in the mail or you get that phone call, you got that email or you got the thing and you landed that intense newness that just came, which gives you this. So what does it do? It gives you this burst of joyous energy. And what are you going to do? The first thing you do is you're going to shout, which means usually you don't shout. You're a normal person. You don't shout, but suddenly you're going to scream. You're going to shriek a good shriek, a happy shriek. You might even jump up and down. You might, if you're crazy happy and you got a lot of energy, you might even do a tumble sauce, a somersault. Or you're so happy, you're going to hit the music and you'll start dancing. Now, dancing alone in your bedroom or dancing alone in your kitchen is a weird thing to do. I do it a lot of times because I'm weird. But, but, but normal people don't usually just let go in a dance. The dance, what is the dance? Because when you have a surge of energy, that's what joy does. Joy pumps adrenaline an enormous amount of energy. And when you have enormous amount, then you clap and you dance and you jump. In Hasidic terminology, they use the term simcha pirates get there. Simcha breaks the fence. What's the fence? We have certain fences. The fences is our decorum. The fences are our certain mannerisms in which we behave. It's a certain system. Every person is systemized with a certain system. This is the way you conduct your regular affairs. This is your normalcy. Joy makes you a little bit meshuga. Joy makes you a little crazy. It brings crazy behavior. What does crazy behavior in this case mean? Abnormal behavior. And that's why by a wedding, when people are joyous, they do silly things. And the sign, if you're really happy, is if you're silly at a wedding. If you're just one of those people that are dancing around the wedding and not being silly at the wedding, you're probably not too happy. If you're very close to the bride or the groom, it's your child, you can be silly. Because the silliness, again, it's also you're breaking that normalcy. 
And it says about King David that when they were bringing the 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 Aron, he was so happy that the Aron was coming back and it was going to be placed in its rightful place. It caused him such explosive joy that King David acted in a silly way. He was dancing like crazy to the point that his wife, who was an aristocratic girl, looked out of the window and she, she was a daughter of the king. She was very, very unhappy because it was unbefitting for an aristocrat, for, for, uh, for a king to behave this way. She didn't appreciate it. But King David, at this moment, he lost it completely. When you're happy, really, with powerful joy, you'll lose it. So now let's take a look, and that's the relationship of joy to miracles. Because just like miracles breaks the normal system and things start behaving in a different way than they've been behaving till now, there's a radical change. In the same way, joy. But now, based on this idea, we would think that which miracle is supposed to create more joy? Now that we understand the relationship of joy to a miracle, when we watch something that goes outside of its normal boundaries for a good way, things can go outside of the normal boundaries in a bad way, God forbid. But when things go out of its normal cycle in a good way, when things spin off its axle in a good spin, so that's going to throw us for a happy spin. So the more it it it's it's kind of breaching the normal the more happy it should create within us so if i was to say a hard miracle or a soft miracle we would probably all vote the hard miracle because that's completely no because the words the 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 sages use the words that we have are simcha porates gather simcha breaches offense that's the actual word now breaching offense means that there is a fence and the fence is locked and now we broke open the fence and the fence remains there but now you can go through imagine you're coming to a gate that's locked it says the park is closed it's only opening at eight o'clock you come to the park and the park is closed and you're there so there's a fence and you're frustrated because you came all the way out of here to you know hike or do something and now it says it's closed you're frustrated and suddenly you go whatever and suddenly this the gate swings open <laughs> and you're in so that's called breaking you know i'm saying i'm not giving anybody uh ideas and i was funny because i was once i once came back i went on a hike in los angeles a crazy story me and my wife we went on a hike it says you got to be back by sunset because the gates lock at sunset no we went on the hike we came back after sunset but who thinks that the gate is really going to be locked now we're locked in. <laughs> we weren't the first car. We were like three cars. And it says if you get locked in, you should call this number and the sheriff's department will come and open. So what do we do? We call the number. And they love when people get locked in and they want to make you suffer. So the sheriff tells me that yeah, probably like in an hour, uh, we'll be over there. We have other things to do. We're not coming yet. You should have seen the sign. The sign said sunset. Anyways, everybody on the line that was there was like five cars there. Everybody called and everybody got there. We kept on we were waiting 45 minutes already. And it seemed like they were in no hurry. They were enjoying the fact that anybody that didn't listen to the sign is actually stuck. I'm not recommending this, but literally, this is what happened. A car from behind, <laughs> there was a guy who went out. I see him walking to the gate and coming back. The guy comes out suddenly with a crowbar, not a crowbar, like one of these wire cutters, metal cutters. 
And what am I, am I thinking, is that for real? He walks up to the front. He goes to the lock. Bang! Before I know it, the, the, the door is open. All the cars leave. I don't know. The sheriff must have come back, and I'm sure they weren't too happy. The gate was gone. Not the gate. It was oh, The lock was gone, and everybody left. And um, that was the story. I have to say that even though it was not the most, you can argue, the morality of the guy opening the gate, but the fact that we were locked in over there and we couldn't go home, and now we were able to go home felt really good. And also the fact that it, there was the excitement of a gate that was supposed to be locked that suddenly swung open, that just gave me, it brought out my childish joy. And I enjoyed being a bad boy and going through this, this gate when it's supposed to be locked and now we got, we got through. So the idea of breaching a gate means there is still a fence, there is still, but it breached and it's open. That's what now. So now let's analyze the two miracles. The hard miracle, the hard miracle takes down the fence completely. There is no fence. When a hard miracle happens and God knocks nature out completely, there is no fence. Let's put it into simple words. When God knocked out every last Egyptian, that there was no more Egyptian, of course we were free. We were free to go. There was nobody there. There were no guards left. There was no one left to oppress us. So we're free. But in the story of Persia, no, it's the same Ahasuerus. It's the same police force. It's the same soldiers who till now were spitting at the Jew, who called out anti-Semitic slurs, who snickered when they saw and they said, you just wait. And a couple of months from now, you guys are done. It's these very same policemen. It's this very same king. It's this very same army. It's these very same anti-Semites that were taunting us. Suddenly, they have a whole change of heart. And they are leading the parades. And they are shooting fireworks and celebrating the Jewish people. That's called a breached fence. That's an incredible salvation. So the breaching, the, the change of the normal is much bigger in, in, in that miracle. As opposed to, okay, there is an obliterate. I mean, you know, if there's no choice and that's what's needed, the complete obliteration of evil, then that's good. And that worked at that time. But the, 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 what we might call the shattering of the system, the breaking open, the breaching of the, of the, of the norm was more in the Purim miracle. And therefore the joy of Purim far exceeds the joy of all the other holidays. So much so that in every holiday you're supposed to be festive. We make Kiddush, we drink a little wine and so on. But on Purim there is an obligation that you drink so much till you lose your mind completely. Till you become totally crazy. Totally inebriated. Till you know you literally, till you don't know the difference anymore. Speak to your local rabbi to get guidelines on that. But that's officially what the sages say. On Purim, one has to drink until they lose their mind completely. The joy has to be limitless. The breaching of the fence on Purim is much stronger and far more potent. Because there is a fence. And the fence won't open. Not that there is no fence anymore. All of this, we can understand now why the miracles of Passover do not bring such a joy. We don't have an obligation, Mishanech. 
Why it's only the miracle of Purim. We still then, but now we still need to understand. So then why does Rashi throw in Pesach? So Pesach, the miracles of Pesach was of the other nature, was of the hard miracle. What does it have to do with the joy of Adar? And the answer to that is because really there is a lot to say for the big, 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 big miracles. The hard miracles also have some quality. What's the quality of the hard, hard miracle? Is that no one can dismiss the miracle. The divine is so conspicuous and so clear by the exodus that God is far more visible in such a miracle than God camouflaged in nature. So again, let's put it this way. There is quality in a soft miracle, in a miracle that engages nature and, and invests itself and works within nature, in that, that we are far more participant and we can flip the darkness over to light. There's a lot to celebrate in that kind of a miracle, but there is also a sharper perception of God and a, a greater display by the miracle of Pesach. So what, and therefore, Rabshinir Zalman of Liadi in the book of Torah Or that we study on Thursday nights, says that in God's name, the miracles that are, uh, uh, the, the, what, the miracle of Passover, the miracle of Pesach, which is the hard type of a miracle, comes from the first letter of God's name. It comes from the Yud of Hashem's name. The miracles of Purim, which are the miracles that are more enclosed in nature, come from the hay of God's name, which the hay of Hashem's na name is much closer to creation. Therefore, it respects creation more, but it's a much inferior level of the divine versus the Yud, which is a, for a higher level. So things that come from the Yud are more potent, more powerful, more revealed. God is more powerful. God is shining and much brighter when, in such a miracle. The other miracle, godliness, is toned down. But then he adds another secret. And he says, but in truth, even though the miracle coming from the, the Passover miracles, the miracles of the Exodus are brighter, more revealed, the miracles enclosed in nature are really coming. In truth, it's really coming from a higher place. Because the hey of Hashem's name, which is the Malchut, the lowest of the ten of the four letters of God's name, is rooted even higher than the Yud. But it's not so revealed. And actually he adds a very interesting idea. He says, because the source of miracles that are enclosed in nature are so high, if that source would be revealed, if, if it wouldn't come camouflaged, if it would come in a revealed way, creation couldn't handle it at all. It would do away with the world completely. So the Passover miracle, the hard miracle, is Godly is coming from a high source, but not as high as the other one. A high source that suspends nature, but doesn't destroy the world completely. It's not like when Passover happened, it was the creation was blown apart. The miracles happened in a certain place. The rest of the world continued operating. It was like laser beam. It happened in Egypt. Where it happened, it busted everything. But the world still was still able to exist. The Purim miracle comes from a place so high in the infinite light that if that infinite light would drop down in the world as it is, it would do away with the, with the world completely. So there's different dynamics, different recipes for what creates these miracles. But the ultimate, ultimate quality 
is when both these miracles will marry together. In other words, when we're going to have a joint experience, when the miracles will be completely revealed, it will be spectacular, miraculous. It will be a miracle that what? That is of the thing that, of, of, the, of the type that God is, that no one can deny it. It's clear it's a miracle. But at the same time, it will, its effect on the world will be that the world will not be blown away by it. But the world will join that miracle that is happening. The response of the unholy will not be to die, to be knocked out. The response of the, whole, uh, of the unholy will be to flip over. It will be both a magical revelation from above and at the same time a participation of below. When will that be? That will only be in the days of Mashiach. In the days of Mashiach, we're going to have both these elements coming together. On the one hand, it says, The miracles of the up-and-coming redemption are going to be similar to going out of Egypt. And as explained, it means they will be much greater in their scope than it was by the going out of Egypt. But what will it do to the enemies? What will it do to the anti-Semites? What will it do to the forces of darkness in the world? It won't kill them. It won't annihilate them. It will cause them all to do tshuva. It will bring about a mass um, um, rectification, a mass change of heart. Those very same entities sitting today in the UN, full of anti-Semites, sadly to say the United States joined along, condemning Israel for for building settlements in its own land that we lived in for thousands of years. Those very anti-Semites will all vote and applaud Israel and the Jewish people when Mashiach will come. They will see a lot of miracles before that. I know, I know big miracles will need to happen before that happens. But the way it will happen the verse says it. God says, I will flip the UN. The very UN Security Council that today, they didn't pass a, 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 uh, a what do they call it, they think, but they, they condemned. Uh, they condemned Israel very strongly. And the United, sadly, the United States joined in it. In the shame of this country. But Mashiach is coming. The big miracles will come. And the flip will happen. So we will have both. It will be intensely God. And it will be joined by us from below. We will not be destroyed by it. We will not be overwhelmed by it. We won't even be uncomfortable by it. We will be elevated through it. And we too will, from within ourselves, participate so happily and joyfully. Based on all of this, we can now understand. Oh, so that's why Rashi mentions Pesach and Purim. Because the objective is the fusion of both of them. Where we're heading to, is to combine both of them together. Pesach and Purim together. Now, and that's the joy of the month of Adar. Now we'll also understand its connection to this week's Torah portion, Pasha's Truma. What the 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 junction of Parsha's Truma in this particular part of the Torah 
is first of all, it was only in the last two weeks that we really, really got into the inner part of the Torah. You realize everything that happens from creation, the story of creation and the story of our forefathers and the story of you know Joseph and the brothers and the story of the sale in Egypt and the Egyptian slavery and the exodus, that's all a preface. That's all an introduction. That's not the main point. The main point that God wants with creation, what's the inner point, the inner desire? God wanted to give the Torah to the world. He wanted to communicate his inner will and his inner light. But what's the deeper part of giving the Torah is that God wants to give himself to the world. He wants the world to become a home for him so that he can come down and live here in this world. Through the Torah and the mitzvahs, we funnel God into the world. And through the Torah and the mitzvahs, we make ourselves vessels for God's light. But primarily in the last two Torah portions, Yisro and Mishpatim, which are both about the it's all in Parshas Yisro is when God gives the Torah. Parshas Mishpatim is a continuation to the giving of the Torah. Like it says in the beginning, Rashi says, just like Yisro was from Sinai, Mishpatim is also from Sinai. So it's all a continuation of the giving of the Torah. The last few verses in Parshas Mishpatim talk about Moshe being told to go up to the mountain to, re to take the, to, re to, to, to stay with God for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's all Yisro and Mishpatim, our sister Torah portions, our twin parshas, all about the giving of the Torah. What's the, what's, what's the novelty of this week's Torah portion, parshas? Teruma, God says to the Jewish people, build me a temple. What's different? Different, what makes it unique? Until now, God was flowing from above. It was him taking us out of Egypt. It was him revealing himself. It was him excuse me, communicating himself to us. Excuse me, showering us with his wisdom, with his light. Now God says, now it's enough with me. Now you do something. You start bringing your possessions. You make for me a home. So that I can live amongst you. And the, so the novelty of Parshas Teruma is here was we're really, really, really getting to the ultimate. And that is what? We making our own lives and our own physical space into the receptacle for God's presence. Make for me a temple. It's the same idea of what makes Purim more special than Passover. In other words, we can say like this. Where is Purim in the Torah? Purim in the Torah. Where is the month of Ador in the Torah? Parshas Teruma. Because the whole idea of the month of Ador is to receive God, to open our hearts to God from within ourselves, not by being imposed upon from above. We choose. We're choosing to be in a relationship. We're choosing to invite God in. We're choosing to live a godly life. And we're choosing to live a godly life, unlike in Parshas Mishpatim, in last week's Torah portion, where Moses is told by God, you want to take my Torah, come up to heaven. So Moses, Moses goes up to heaven. But when Moses goes to heaven, what happens to him? He ceases to be physical. He doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. He becomes an angelic being. So even though Moshe is being, the human being is receiving godliness but how is the human being receiving godliness by escaping his humanity by becoming an angel that's not the point the point is that god says 
nature, the world, you, physical human beings, with all of your physicality, with all of your human traits, with all of your human tininess, with all of your human pettiness. Take of your silver, of your gold, take of your possessions, take of your life, create space for me. Take me seriously. I want to live with you in your material, physical life. While you are you. And we become comfortable with living a godly life. While we are as much human as we are, when we're going about doing mitzvahs and doing godly things, we in our physicality, while we're physical, we become and join with the infinite. That's the magic. And we do it not by being, not with any external pressure. We're doing it because so we choose. It's literally the other story. It's the story of Kimu Vikibu Ayahud, and we accept it. We're doing it because we're excited to do so. It's from a very deep place within us. We appreciate that this is our greatest honor. This is the most unbelievable thing. And this leads us to enormous joy that we in our everyday lives can be merged with, an, with, with that God is literally living inside our hearts, inside our heads, inside our limbs. He's living in our kitchen. He's living in our bedroom. He's living. He's, you walk into your house. God is there. He's the mezuzah is there. That's God. Everywhere you have holy books in your home. Yet God is in your home. It's a sacred house. And of course, this is all leading up to the third temple where we will visibly see it. And from the temple, the same dwelling of God that will be in the temple, we will be conscious of God's presence in our lives while we will continue to be human beings in this physical world. And we will know that it will that it all has happened, but not by not through miracles from above, but through our choices that we've made. That's the great joy, and that's the great happiness. So may we merit already to see it all. And let's have the most joyous month of Ador. Recognize that now is the time from today and onwards. Forget about what was yesterday. If certain parts of Judaism, of living according to halacha, made you uncomfortable, was like felt like it's not you, that's understandable. There's a lot in Judaism is a very demanding, and certain things were comfortable and they were less comfortable. We have an incredible empowerment now to go deeper and to accept to live a godly life and really feel that it is something that we are choosing, not feeling compelled. So again, until we feel compelled, until we can feel comfortable with, we still do it because we don't really have much choice. <laughs> but yet we can choose now what we really didn't have any choice. Now we're choosing as well every element of, of, of Judaism. We're choosing so joyfully to give tzedakah. And to give so much tzedakah, more than we're asked even for, more than the letter of the law, because we really, really are getting a kick out of and a thrill of giving tzedakah. We are choosing to keep Shabbos. Even though keeping Shabbos sometimes felt hard, now we can choose it joyfully and happily. Why? Why? First of all, the fact that we're living in messianic times, when the world is going to become so filled with godliness, and we will... And we lift ourselves up to the holy, to godliness. Tashem, Tashem. Secondly, it's the month of Adar. That's the secret of the month of Adar. The human, the earthy, joins the heaven, the heavenly and the godly. 
because so it chooses. And we're really, 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 really wholeheartedly engaged, completely with it and excited about it. And that is, that is reason to celebrate. And that's awesomely joyous. So may we have the happiest other and may Mashiach be here tonight.